Church family, I invite you to open up in God's word to Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 29. Genesis 49, verse 29, and we'll go through chapter 50, verse 14 today. The title of our message is The Funeral of Undying Hope. The Funeral of Undying Hope. Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 29. Give you a moment to find that. You follow along in your copy of God's word as I read. This is the word of God. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Etad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. This is the word of the Lord for the church today. I'm sure you've heard the saying, live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. Probably heard that before. I don't really like that saying. I'll tell you why. Here's why. It implies that the preacher will lie at your funeral if he has to in order to make you sound like a better person than you actually were or to make you sound like you were more prepared to die than you actually were. And unfortunately, 
The sad truth is that preachers lie at funerals more often than we would like to admit. I think funerals can sometimes present one of the greatest temptations to lie that a preacher faces. And many times, unfortunately, the preacher takes the bait. And if the preacher is not intentionally lying, then he is exposing himself as having been deceived by really, really bad theology. Friends, God's word is clear concerning what must be true of a person's life for there to be confidence in that person's salvation and eternal destination with God in heaven. God's word is clear concerning what a life looks like that is pleasing to God. So then let me ask this question. Why is there a temptation for all of us? Kind of picking on preachers for a minute. But why is there a temptation, not just for preachers, but for all of us to lie or at least say things about a person's eternal destiny or about how God is pleased with that person that really doesn't line up with God's word? Why are we tempted to do that? I think it boils down to one word. It's the word hope. It's the word hope. What do I mean by that? We want hope. We long for hope, especially at a time like death, at something like a funeral. We long for words of hope. When faced with the reality of death, we cling to any chance of hope of life beyond the grave and not just any life but a life free from the trials and tribulations of this life and in that longing for hope which is not a bad thing it's not wrong for us to want hope beyond the grave but in that longing we can sometimes grasp at anything and everything about a person's life that might give us hope that he or she has eternal life with God or that he or she is, as we would often hear and we say it said at funerals, in a better place. But I don't I don't want you today to focus on other people's deaths today or other people's funerals or what you may or may not say about other people when they die. I want you today to focus on your death. I want you to focus on your because if, if Jesus doesn't come back first, We'll, we'll all die. That's one thing that's guaranteed for all of us. We will walk through death's door. Do you have hope in facing death? And if so, what is the basis for your hope? Does that basis provide a hope that goes beyond the grave? Is the hope you have an eternal hope or what we might call an undying hope? Or will your hope that you have die with you? That's the question that I want to pose for us today that I think our passage of Scripture calls us to ask and then helps us answer. The reality is that there are all sorts of wrong things for us to reach out and hold on to thinking that it will provide us with undying hope. But the good news is that and those many things and those things don't actually provide that undying hope. But the good news is there there is an undying hope. That's why it's not wrong for us to want to reach out and grab hold of something to hope. And we just want to grab hold of the right thing. There is hope that goes beyond the grave. There is a hope that provides us with the assurance of life in the glorious presence of God after death. And that's the hope that we want to 
grab a hold of, and that's the hope that we want to take with us to our grave, that undying hope. Church, Genesis chapter 49, verse 29 through chapter 50, verse 14 teaches us this, that God's promise of salvation enables us to face death with the hope of life. God's promise of salvation enables us to face death with the hope of life. We're winding down our study of the book of Genesis, but I hope that as we end, we don't end with our heads down dragging across the finish line, but with our heads up giving it our all as the finish line approaches. There's so much to learn and rejoice in in these, um, in these closing chapters of Genesis. I don't want us to miss any of it. Now, as we work our way through these final chapters, I believe God's word is drawing our attention to um, some very important truths about God's um, God's promise of salvation. In fact, the most incredible truths in all of Scripture, other than just the truth of who God is himself, it's God's promise of salvation. Just as by way of reminder, we've seen that God's promise of salvation calls for the faith of his people. We've seen that God's promise of salvation comes as an undeserved blessing. Last week, we saw that God's promise of salvation centers upon a global king. And today we see that God's promise of salvation enables us to face death with the hope of life. You know, even the mention of death and life reminds us of the context that we're in here in this book of Genesis. Genesis began with God creating the world and filling it with what? Life, right? God created the world and he filled it with life. But only three chapters in, death filled God's world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And yet, chapter 3 closed, if you'll recall, with an undeserved hope of life, even in a world that had been filled with death. Do you remember that? Despite their rebellion against God, God promised, um, speaking of Adam and Eve, despite their rebellion against God, God had promised to send this uh, offspring through the woman. Offspring, it, it means life, right? There can't be offspring without there being Another life being born. So God's promised to send this offspring through the woman who would destroy the enemy. And then chapter three ended with the man naming his wife Eve. Do you remember that? And the name Eve means the mother of all living. And so from the beginning chapters of Genesis, we've seen that there is the hope of life in the face of death. And time and time again, we've seen that this hope of life hinges on God's promise of salvation. Now, as we come to the end of Jacob's life today, the reality of death in God's creation is very much present here in our passage. And yet, church, as Jacob is on his deathbed and as he walks through death's door, there is much hope. Think about it. Think about what we've learned so far about the deathbed of, of, of uh, Jacob. It spans several chapters. On his deathbed, Jacob has remembered God's covenant. On his deathbed, Jacob has blessed his sons. In other words, there's hope for the future, right? It's this future blessing that he's given them. On his deathbed, he has spoken of a future king who would rule the world with a reign of abundant peace and prosperity. So, so what is the basis for Jacob's funeral here being one of undying hope? And how can our funeral be the same? I want to share with you four truths today that I pray will leave us clinging to God's promise of salvation as the only thing enabling us to face death with the hope of life. Now, sometimes maybe you found this to be true in different things and with different things in life. Sometimes it's helpful um, when you're trying to understand something to state things that are not true in order to expose any lies that we might be believing and to help us see that which is true more clearly. Some, sometimes it's easier to say, now this is what's 
what we don't want to believe. This is what's not true because that's going to help us understand um, what is true and it'll help us um, help us stay away from those things that aren't true. Uh, think about it as though you're falling through the branches of a tree. Um, hopefully you've never had that experience, but let's just say um, you're falling through the branches of a tree. I, sometimes I've watched these videos of people jumping out of airplanes and parachuting to the ground and I've don't ever really want to do that, um, but uh, but sometimes their parachutes don't work, and I've seen some where it kind of opens, it slows them down a little bit. Man, they just crash through these trees, and they're just hitting branches and hitting branches on the way down. I want you to I want you to imagine we're, we're falling through through a, a tree, and um, we're grabbing on the branches on the way down to try to stop our fall. And let's say in that tree there's only one branch that is strong enough to stop our fall and keep us from hitting the ground and basically to rescue us. All the other branches are too weak. They'll just snap if we try to grab onto them. The first three truths that I'm going to share with us today from the text um, are three of those weak branches that if we grab a hold of them, they're going to snap. They're not going to provide us with undying hope. And then our final truth, which is really just restating our main idea, um, and uh, it's I'll go ahead and tell you the promise of salvation is where we're going to end. Uh, but that final truth, that's the one that's the one branch that is strong enough to give us the hope that we need that will last beyond the grave, that undying hope. All right. Truth number one, undying hope is not found. Remember, this is a weak branch that we don't want to grab onto. Undying hope is not found in denying the harsh reality of death. Undying hope is not found in this spirit of denial where we deny the harsh reality of death. It doesn't really make sense if you think about it, but so many people do it anyways. In trying to grab hold of hope in the face of death, we can be tempted to pretend as if death doesn't really exist. Like it doesn't really impact us. Either we live like we're not going to die Or when someone does die, we act like it's merely time to celebrate life. Now, don't get me wrong. If someone has lived in such a way that his or her life is a great example for us to follow and our minds are filled with wonderful memories of that person, we ought to celebrate that, be thankful for that. And if that person had the undying hope of everlasting life with God, then we definitely ought to celebrate that as well. But in all the celebrating... I think we can run the risk of skipping over death itself. Jacob dies with incredible hope, and yet this passage describing his death and funeral is a passage that is filled with great and deep sorrow and sadness. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. We can have hope and yet face the harsh reality of death and all the sadness and pain that it brings. After giving his burial instructions, which we're going to come back to, Jacob dies in chapter 49, verse 33. And then notice the first verse of chapter 40. It says, uh, excuse me, of chapter 50. It says, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Some of you know exactly what that is like. To watch a loved one breathe his or her last breath and then to feel the deep, Sorrow pour forth as you cover that deceased loved one with your tears. Is a moment of very real hurt and pain and sorrow and heaviness and grief. And then look at verse 3. 
We're told that the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. The Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And then after Jacob's body was embalmed, Joseph got permission from Pharaoh to take his father's body to the land of Canaan to bury it. And this massive company of people traveled to the gravesite. And, and, and by the way, we're going to skip back and forth a little bit in our passage today. So just try to follow along with me. Notice verse uh, 10 and 11 in chapter 50. Notice this description. When they came to the threshing floor of Etad, which is beyond the Jordan, they notice all the sorrow language. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Etad, they said, this is a grievous mourning. In other words, this is a Deep, deep mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. They even renamed the place because there were so many tears that were shed over Jacob's uh, death. Abel Mizraim means the mourning of Egypt. Remember, when we say mourning, that's the M-O-U-R-N, right? The, the, the mourning of crying, not, not the mourning of it's a new day. Okay, they renamed the place. That's how many tears were being shed. A great morning church, as we'll see, this funeral was one of undying hope. But the undying hope was not the result of denying the harsh reality of death. There is weeping and great mourning at the death of Jacob. And if we're tempted to think that, well, maybe it's only Jacob that had this hope, but apparently not his family. We could skip ahead to the end of chapter 50 where Joseph dies. And there we learn that Joseph had the same hope as his father. And yet Joseph is here weeping. Over his father's death. Listen, undying hope is not found in denying the reality of death and how hard it is. I think it would do us well to spend more time dwelling on the reality of death. Even as a funeral, even at a funeral, not because it's fun, not because we're trying to be dark and gloomy and morbid people, but because of this church, when we when we. Really think about the reality of death. When we face the harsh reality of it, we see death as the enemy. And when we see death as the enemy, we long for someone or something to rescue us from death. And as we long for someone or something to rescue us from death, that's when our hearts are ready to receive and to celebrate the true life-giving hope that God's promise of salvation and only God's promise of salvation provides us with. As we face the harsh reality of death, we will understand the need to prepare well for the death that is coming to each one of us. To prepare by believing in God's promise of salvation. Death is real. It's coming for each of us. So don't think that pretending like it's not real is the way to have undying Ignoring the harsh reality of death only gives you a hope that will die with you. Let me share truth number two. Another weak branch that we don't want to grab onto. It will break. Undying hope is not found in earthly attachments. Undying hope is not found in earthly attachments. One question we want to ask at Jacob's funeral is this. What was he attaching himself to in his death? Or maybe another way to put that, what was he holding on to as his hope? For many people, it is some earthly attachment that they're holding on to. 
even unto the grave. But not for Jacob. There's no mention here of his possessions, no mention of any power, no mention of any fame, no list of accomplishments. In fact, the one thing that perhaps rivaled Jacob's love for God, if we could put it that way, the one earthly thing that probably meant more to him than anything else was his love for his wife, Rachel. Remember those those stories that we've studied already about Jacob and Rachel? But what we see in his funeral, in his death, is that his hope wasn't even in that earthly attachment. Now, you remember Rachel, right? Remember, Rachel was his first and only true love. Oh, he loved Rachel so much. It was a love at first sight. Jacob had worked seven years for her uh, hand in marriage, only to be tricked by her father Laban and given her older sister Leah instead. And he turned right around and said, I'll work another seven years for Rachel. He loved her so much. After he did finally marry her, after some years of barrenness, she had two children and then she died what we would often call a premature death. It wasn't in her old age that she died. He lost the love of his life. But he seemed to keep showing his love for her after her death. He didn't forget about her, and he showed that love for her, unfortunately, by showing a lot of favoritism to her two sons compared with his other children. And so that attachment to Rachel didn't always turn out well for Jacob and his family, but it's undeniable that Jacob loved Rachel dearly. Which, think about it, it would lead that 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 love for Rachel would lead us to think that when Jacob is giving his burial instructions, he would say, make sure you bury me with Rachel. They knew where her burial site was. It was marked um, that it, it, it was it was not an unknown location. He knew where it was. It, you would think that he would say, bury me with Rachel, but he doesn't do that. And that should grab our attention. He asked to be buried with his grandparents and parents and with Leah, not Rachel. Why is that? Well, in requesting to be buried with Leah and his parents and grandparents, Jacob is attaching himself to the covenantal promises of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in our last truth. But for now, just notice that in attaching himself to the covenantal promises of God, notice what he's not attaching himself to in his death. He's not attaching himself to any earthly attachments, not even to his wife, Rachel. As much as he loved Rachel, his ultimate hope was not in his earthly relationship with her, but in God's covenant promises to him which are signified by the burial site where Abraham and Isaac and their wives and Leah were buried. Friends, there are all sorts of earthly attachments we might be tempted to hope in. Maybe it's possessions or money. Maybe it's a good job or a successful career. Maybe it's a position of power or fame. Maybe it's a particular friend group or or relationship. Maybe it's a hobby or some accomplishment. And, And not all of those things are inherently bad, but none of those things provide us with the hope of life in the face of death. None of those things can save us. Undying hope is not found in earthly attachments. In fact, when we stand before God one day, those things may even serve as evidence of idolatry in our hearts if we were guilty of prioritizing those things over God in our lives. In other words, 
if not kept in their proper place, those things can prevent us from grabbing hold of the one thing that can give us hope beyond the grave. How many people go to the grave grabbing on to the things of this earth only to find out that those things provide no hope when we face death? If we go to the grave hoping in some earthly attachment, that hope will die with us. Truth number three. Truth number three. This is another one of those weak branches that we don't want to grab onto. Undying hope, church, is not found in being a good person. Undying hope is not found in being a good person. This truth is seen in what we don't see in this passage and what we know about Jacob as we reflect back on his life. In this passage, there is no list of all the good things that Jacob did. We don't see that on his deathbed. Jacob doesn't point back to his past performance. He doesn't say, look how good I serve God. He doesn't say, look at this good thing I've done or that good thing I've done or or all of these good things that I have done. And as we reflect back on Jacob's life, which we often do at a a funeral, we see that Jacob was not a good man. He took advantage of his brother. He deceived his father. Do you remember? This is the Jacob who deceived his old blind dad. I mean, how low do you have to go to do that? He stole from his brother. He sparked division in his family through his favoritism. There's no other way to describe Jacob except as a sinner. I'm not saying his entire life, everything he did would be classified as the most horrible thing you could do. But to look back on Jacob's life and say, now that was a good man. Well, we'd, be, we'd be mistaken if we did that. He is a sinner. He was a sinner. Any hope he had in life after death could not in any way be based on him being a good person or doing good deeds. Is it good to try to do good things? Yes, it is. Should we be thankful for the good things a person does and the good example people may set? Yes, we should be thankful for that. But for every good deed or good attribute we remember about someone's life at a funeral, and I don't care who it is, there are plenty of sins and sinful attributes that we choose not to mention. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we ought to list out all of a person's sins at his or her funeral. That's not that's not my point. The point is that often we bank our hope of a person experiencing life with God after death on him or her being a good person. We even say it. We say, oh, that was a good man. Well, that was a lovely lady. Now, if that goodness or loveliness was the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of salvation, the fruit of God transforming that person's heart through the gospel, then praise the Lord. Let's make sure we give God the credit for that. 
But if that goodness or that loveliness was the attempt by that person to earn eternal life through trying to do more good things than bad things or trying to make up for past sins by doing good deeds, then that hope is based on something that cannot provide eternal life beyond the grave. Anytime we call someone good, we must remember the word of God, which says none is righteous. No, not one. Just insert the word good there for righteous for a moment. None is good. No, not one. None. Every person that dies, dies deserving God's eternal wrath. Because no matter how many good things we think we do or are remembered for doing, every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jacob is not the only sinner. Church, you and me, we're all sinners. Our only hope is for God to show us grace and give us life beyond the grave that we absolutely do not deserve. You see, if you're hoping in your good works and you being called a good person at your funeral to provide you with the hope in the face of death, you will be disappointed with the outcome to say the very least. Jesus himself said that there will be many on that day that said, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then they'll list all the good things that they did. And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. We cannot bank on our good works to give us an undying hope. Hoping in your ability to be a good person means you have a hope that will die with you. And there will be many on that day who have taken that weak branch, have taken that wrong hope with them to the grave. So undying hope is not found in denying the harsh reality of death. Undying hope is not found in earthly attachments. Undying hope is not found in being a good person. So where in the world is undying hope found, church? Number four, this is the strong branch. This is the one we want to hang on to. Undying hope is found And God's promise of salvation. It is found in God's promise of salvation. This passage is very clearly directing our attention to God's covenant promises, which have been the theme of Genesis. You say, well, I don't see the word promise or covenant or salvation in this passage. So how could that be the main point? Let me show you two ways this passage is highlighting God's promise of salvation. First, notice the way this passage is drawing our attention to the burial. It's not really the death of Jacob that gets emphasized in this passage as much as it is the burial of Jacob. The word bury is used 14 times in these verses. And the, and the description of the burial site serves as bookends for this passage. The passage opens with a description of the burial site and it closes with an almost identical description of the burial site. Look at uh, verse uh, chapter. 49 beginning in verse 29 notice the words pay close attention to the words then he commanded them this is jacob talking and said to them i am to be gathered to my people another way of saying i'm going to i'm going to die bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of ephron the hittite in the cave that is in the field at machpelah to the east of mamre in the land of canaan which abraham bought with the field from ephron the hittite to possess as a burying place there they buried abraham and sarah his wife there they buried isaac and rebecca his wife and there i buried leah The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, 
skip to the end of the passage, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 50. See if these words sound familiar. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. God's not giving us a redundancy there because he ran out of things to say in his word. There's a reason we have those words almost identical repeated twice in this passage, book ending this passage. The burial site is significant. Church, in the face of death, the text here is driving us back to God's covenant promises, which are promises of salvation. Remember, God had called Abraham to leave his homeland. This was Jacob's grandfather and travel to the land of Canaan. And God had promised to give Abraham that land and to make him into a great nation and to bless all the families of the earth through him. And even though Abraham died without ever seeing all of those promises fulfilled, God allowed him to have a down payment, if you will, on his promise. You remember chapter 23 of Genesis? Maybe not. Probably not the most memorable passage in Genesis or or chapter in Genesis. Genesis chapter 23, let me remind you, is a chapter, the whole chapter, completely devoted to Abraham purchasing a burial plot for Sarah. And when we studied that chapter, we said that God was providing a little glimpse of that coming day when he would make good on his promise to give the whole land to Abraham's offspring. He gave him a little piece of it, letting purchase a little piece of it that he owned as a glimpse of what was coming one day. It was a little glimpse that God was going then to make good on all of his promises, including the promise of a deliverer through the offspring of Abraham. And guess how chapter 23 ended? We always have to read God's word in its context. Not just the verses right around it, but in its broader context. Let me read to you the end of chapter 23. See if this sounds familiar. After this, Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Does it sound familiar? Almost the same words repeated twice in this passage are the words that we found in Genesis chapter 23. And actually, if we looked at Genesis chapter 25, we would see those same words used at Abraham's death. So at Sarah's death, at Abraham's death, and at Jacob's death, two times we see this statement repeated. The text is drawing our attention to the covenant promises of God and requesting to be buried in the one little piece of land in Canaan that he and his family owned, Jacob was displaying faith in God's promise to one day give them that land and ultimately to one day send the salvation that sinful people desperately deem. Do you remember Genesis chapter 49, verse 18? Just back your eyes up just a little bit. Jacob, in the middle of blessing his, his sons, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Jacob's hope at his death was completely in God's promises and his belief that God would make good on his promise of salvation. Now, Jacob didn't know exactly how God's promises would be fulfilled, but he believed that they would be. We, on the other hand, stand, I would say, in a privileged position to Jacob because we know the mystery that was long kept kept a mystery, but has now been revealed. We know what happened in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. We know what happened in the city of Jerusalem about 33 years after that. We know God's promise of salvation was fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent His only Son to this earth to take on human flesh and become the answer to the problem of death. 
And Jesus faced the harsh reality of death while he was here on this earth. He wept real tears when his friend Lazarus died. Even though Jesus knew that he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still didn't run over, bypass the harsh reality of death. He wept at Lazarus' death. Jesus kept his life free from earthly attachments, never once being distracted from bringing honor to the Father as he, Jesus, walked in complete obedience to him. And even though Jesus was the only person who truly was good, we can say that about Jesus. He truly was good because he was God. He is God. Even though he was good, even though he was righteous, he died for sinners like you and me so that our inability to be good enough would not prevent us from enjoying eternal life with the holy God even beyond the grave. Jesus paid the price for our sin and his death on the cross. He absorbed the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death, so that everyone who places their hope in Jesus doesn't have to fear the grave, but is but it, but it has this hope that doesn't die, this hope that when we walk through death's door, we're walking into eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus lives forever. The hope he provides is an undying hope. And so the words and structure of this passage highlights God's promise of salvation, one, by pointing us back to his covenant with Abraham that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. But the words here also highlights God's promise of salvation by pointing us ahead to God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. I don't know if you noticed this, but there were some other words that were repeated in this passage. The words go up, went up, carry up are used six times in chapter 50. Four of those times in our passage today and then two of those times in the passage that we will look at, Lord willing, next week. They went up with the body of Jacob from Egypt to Canaan. They carried up this body. He said, go up. I got to go up, Joseph said to Pharaoh. Over 400 years later but only a couple pages later in your Bibles, in the book of Exodus, these same words are used to describe God's deliverance of the people uh, uh, people of Israel as they went up from Egypt to the promised land. And so these words, words matter. These words went up, go up, carry up, are meant to draw our attention to God's future deliverance of his people out of bondage into the promised land. This picture is even better than that if we'll stop and think about the funeral procession. We don't want to think about a funeral procession, do we? Well, we want to think about this funeral procession as it's described in chapter 50. It's not just Joseph that takes his dad's body back to the land of Canaan. And it's not even just his brothers. Verse 7 and 8 of chapter 50 tell us this. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. We're talking about Egypt. We're talking about a whole other, another nation. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. And then verse 9 says, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. So basically the military goes as well. It was a very great company. And church, the picture here is this. Think about it. We've got we to see it in our minds. The picture is a large, multi-ethnic congregation of people traveling to the land of promise. Do you see that? 
It's a little snapshot of God's promise of salvation. It's a little snapshot of what God is doing right now today as he is gathering his people from every nation to walk through the valley of the shadow of death into the bounty of everlasting life in his promised land. It wasn't ready to happen then, but it's just a little glimpse of what was coming one day. This promise was fulfilled, as we've said, in Jesus coming to be the Savior, not of one people, but of the whole world. A promise that says that everyone, no matter your language, no matter your, your, your nationality, your ethnicity, no, no matter any of that, everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved from sin and delivered from death and given everlasting life with God. Yes, Jesus wept when Lazarus died, but Jesus also said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said this, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's promise of salvation through Jesus is why the Apostle Paul could write these words to Christians who were struggling when faced with the death of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul wrote this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's using that um, to speak of death, that you may not grieve as others do who have not hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. The Apostle Peter called this hope, I love this, a living hope, right? The Apostle Peter said this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Uh, this hope that is an, uh, that is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. Who, who, who is that? Who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And church, this promise of life in the face of death not only allows us to face death with the hope of life, it leads us to live lives that make an eternal difference as long as we have life here on this earth. Writing about our glorious hope of life beyond the grave, Paul said this. He said, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying the grave is not the end. Then he says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, oh, what hope. We have in Christ. Oh, what a life we get to live here on this earth when our hope is in Christ. And oh, what a death we get to die when our hope is in Christ. It is it is when our hope is in Christ that death is simply a doorway into everlasting life. With God, our father and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are you hoping in today? What branch are you holding on to? Is it one of those branches that is a false hope of life? Or is it that one strong branch, the branch of Jesus, who provides a certain hope of everlasting life? Friend, when someone stands up to preach your funeral one day, what will be said? Will the preacher be able to say his hope was in Jesus? Her hope was in Jesus. That's the best thing that anyone could ever say in response to our death, because that is the only hope that does not die. You want to you want to hear what I think the greatest funeral sermon would sound like? 
It can just be one sentence, maybe two. You ready? Here it is. Here we are today to mourn the death of a great sinner whose hope was in a greater Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, let us mourn, but let us mourn with hope. When our hope is in the salvation promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ the Lord, then and only then can we have a funeral of undying hope. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I hope that everyone in here can say, speaking truthfully, my hope is in Jesus and in Jesus Christ alone. But perhaps there's someone here today who has been holding on to one of those weak branches. Maybe in just pretending like death is not going to come your way, that somehow you can outlive death. Maybe in some earthly attachment, your hope has been placed. Maybe, maybe in trying to be a good person. Oh, stop holding on to that hope. In this moment, would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you ask the Lord to come into your life and do a work that only you can do, that only He can do? To rescue you from your sin. And to give you the hope of His resurrection that He gladly shares with anyone who will place their faith in Him. In this moment, would you believe in Jesus for salvation? Place your hope in Him. And if you have done that, then church, may we press on in the midst of brokenness, knowing that we have a hope that will never die, And in the face of sorrow and in the face of sadness and even in the face of death, we serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And then with joy in our hearts, we breathe our last breath, knowing that when our hope is in Christ, it is merely a doorway into the eternal joys of seeing Jesus face to face. Christ alone is our only hope in life and in death. Father, thank you for your word. May we be obedient to the voice of your spirit today. And may we declare with one strong voice that our hope is in Jesus. Today, tomorrow, the next day, every day you give us here on this earth and unto the grave, what will we sing? That Jesus Christ is our only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.